Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Well, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, so let's start with prayer. Father, thanks for this night, for the opportunity to open this precious word, and I pray that it would be precious to us, Father. We just thank you for an opportunity to study, open our hearts and minds, and help us in our discussions. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Second Thessalonians was written not too long after First Thessalonians. Most scholars say maybe six months at the most. Um, it certainly wasn't a long period of time. And uh, the reason it was written is to deal with some of the leftover questions that... Paul still had to deal with in the uh, first book that he wrote, the first letter he wrote. Um, if you remember the first letter, what was the big confusion in the first letter? What was the real big thing they had to deal with? Second coming? Yeah, the whole, yeah, what's going on here? Because they were totally confused about the second coming. Paul had told them about the coming apostasy, he told them about the rapture, he told them about um, Christ coming in judgment. He told them about a time of persecution. They were suffering persecution, therefore their natural thought was, well, we're in it. This is it. We missed it. We missed the rapture. Um, we're in the day of the Lord. And Paul has to straighten that out. And he does a, you know, he makes a fairly good attempt at doing that, but there were still some problems along that line. And the second real reason, he, so, so 2 Thessalonians need to be written, number one, to clear up some remaining issues with the second coming. The second thing it was written for is because people had gone too far in their thoughts about the second coming. They, they were so thinking that the rapture was so imminent that they quit their jobs. It's the old go up on the top of the housetop and wait for the Lord to come back. And why, you know, why should I work if Christ is coming back? You know, why, why waste time doing that? The problem is, when Christ started tearing, what happened to those people that were out of jobs now? Well, they're starting to be moochers and deadbeats. And even today in the church, we have moochers and deadbeats. Um, and Paul has to deal with them on that. He's saying, I told you before, I'll tell you again, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, that solves, uh, that solves a lot of the problem we face today with people not wanting to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. And uh, these were busybodies. So he has to deal with both of these issues. And again, both of them deal with this notion of the second coming, the, the, the rapture, revelation, and all of that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, so again, these three are together in the writing of this, to the church of Thessalonians, and God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, grace be you, and peace. Again, always... The, the, the general apostolic author, um, um, greeting, grace, peace, love, etc. 
We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, and it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among all the churches for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. These two verses, we have, um, we have an indication of what makes a church great. If you go to the average person today in the average church and say, all right, what makes a great church? Tell, tell, me, tell me the characteristic of a really great church. What, what are they going to tell you? What, what, which thing are going to tell you? All right, they're going to tell you how many, the number of people that attend, right? Mm -hmm. Our attendance is X thousand people. What else would they use? Yeah, number of programs. Uh, you know, we, we have an Awana program and Boys Brigade and Pioneer Girls and, you know, all of this other stuff. Finances. Finances. How much money do we bring in? We have a $25 million budget for our church last year. <laughs> what else you got? Building. Program. Building. You know, look, look at all the property. <laughs> you know, we got a, you know, some of these churches are amazing. You know, they got rec centers and they got their own, you know, almost uh, hired personal trainers. You know, you go and get your personal training done, everything else. What else What else do they talk about? Somebody mentioned it. Well, I go to Swindoll's church. Yeah, the speaker. I, I have a very famous speaker at my church. And... I mean, you look at all of that stuff there, number of 10 programs, money, property, speaker, what is, let me ask a question, does that, does that make a church great? No. Necessarily. No. Somebody's ta I was talking to somebody over at dinner um, Monday, and uh, we were talking about a, anybody know who Jack Hiles is? Ever hear of Jack Hiles? Yeah. Cat. <laughs> In the wrong way kind of thing. Yeah, pardon? Oh, yeah, rubs me. He, he, he's the kind of guy that would rub me a little the wrong way. But, uh, you know, he's into this. You know, look at, I got numbers. I got, how many people did you save last year? How many people were saved in your church last year? I mean, that's the kind of thing. It's a metric, you know. How many people did you lead to the Lord? All those kind of, and those are good. I mean, it's not bad that you lead people to the Lord. That's a good thing to do. But uh, how many people did you lead to the Lord? And the guy was telling me, he said, well, you know, if you were to challenge Jack Hiles on anything, he said, well, what about your church? You're not doing much. Look what we did at our church. And I say, well, the Mormons do better than he does. I mean, the Mormons have more converts than any other church in the United States. They're the fastest growing denomination. From when I, last I heard, they're the fastest growing. They got more money, I'll tell you that right now, than anybody. There's a greater number of them that tithe than anybody in any of our churches do. You know, yeah, I mean, but, but they've got money. They've got, pro, you know, the Mormon tabernacles. You know, look at those big, massive edifices and things like that. Um, they got all of this stuff, so that certainly doesn't make a church great just because you have money. What makes a church great? I mean, I don't think Paul went around saying, let me tell you about the church at, at, at Thessalonica. You ought, you ought to hear what their budget is for missions. I mean, he, there wasn't any of that stuff. What made a church great to Paul, and by extension, what makes a church great to God? Well, read verse 3. Because your faith grows. You have a growing faith. 
Well, what is it? What do you think he means by a growing faith? What is faith, after all? I mean, what? What? When I say faith, what? What do you mean by? What do you think he means by faith? A growing faith. Of a maturity, the maturity level of the individuals. I think that's one way you measure faith: a growing maturity level. You both depend more upon the Lord. Depend more on the Lord. Growing in sanctification. Could you say growing faith in terms of more people are coming to, to learn? I think all of those are aspects of that. A growing faith. I mean, after all, what is faith? You believe God. That's all faith is. It's just to believe God. And he says you're growing. Your faith grows exceedingly. And, and Paul hears it and everybody else hears it. I mean, this is not an invisible kind of growth. This is a growing faith. So the question you have to ask some of these churches, you know, when you say, you know, what, what kind of church you go to, and they start spotting off how many people come there and the budgets and all this, ask, well, are people growing in the faith there? Because you can have a big budget, you can have a lot of money, and nobody grows. Because, you know, you probably have a big program, people show up, what else are you going to do Sunday night? Watch TV? You know, let's go down and see what's playing at the First Baptist Church. You know, um... And, and you have a lot of that mentality today. You know, get the big speakers in. I'll tell you, it's it's a real simple thing at Open Door to pack our auditorium. Yeah. We get a singer, and it's packed. Now, you get a preacher, and what happens? Halfway. Nobody's there. You get singers, you pack it out. Yeah. All right? I, the, the point is, packing out your church does not necessarily mean you've done anything. What you have to have is a growing faith. And what makes a church great is a growing faith. Not a stagnant faith. And faith is a muscle, you know, it needs to be exercised. If you don't use it, it gets flabby and gets soft and it doesn't do anything. And they were had a growing faith. Yeah. We've done it that way since Noah got off the ark. We're not about to change it, kind of thing. Um, really, there is. There, you need to challenge. I, you know, when I look at the first century church, it was an exciting place to be. When they had a problem, they did, they innovated. They came up with solutions and all that. We don't do that today anymore because, you know, we do it the way we do. We've come institutionalized. And I've seen it here at Open Door where you try to change something and people have a conniption fit. They think you're, you've just denied the Trinity or something like that. You know, and it has nothing to do with that. It's just that people don't want it to grow and, and growth is change. But I think they, they do believe that what faith is. They perceive faith as being something that's unchanging, which it is, but they also believe that nothing should be changed in order to keep that pure faith. I mean, just look at the Puritans, or look at uh, the Amish. Mm -hmm. you know, that's what they believe. You know, in order to maintain pure faith, nothing changes. And, and I think that, and I think that's a misconception. I mean, what we do is we have Christian Amish today. Oh, yeah. We've had a lot of Amish Christian Amish leave Open Door because we, our, our musical styles are different today than they were ten years ago. Well, to them, we're liberal now. We're charismatic. You know, next thing you know, we're going to be dancing in the aisles. And I, I don't think that's going to happen. But, 
but they're, they're scared to change. You're afraid to change. So they want to go back and do church like it was done in the 40s or 50s. And then they the way, say, the way the 50s, yeah, but but the, you're right. They don't want to change, and and faith means you've got to, you've got to exercise. I mean, if you're never trusting God for anything, how does your faith grow? It doesn't. It stagnates and becomes a dead faith after a while. But these people had a growing faith, and then what else did they have? Well, the love of every one of you abounds towards each other. She had a growing faith, and you had an abounding love. And what do, you, what do you think he means there by love? What do you think he means by love? Yeah, they take care of each other. Got a problem, we take care of our own. No, is he talking about over there, it's love for the others, other brothers? And In the church. Or... I think, I think it's primarily in the church and then secondarily to the community. It's like the list in 1 Peter says, first of all, you got to go flow for Yeah, especially for those in the church. And then you, you can't go work there the world. Right. The problem is we hate each other in the church. Why do you think it's that? I've, I've been in organizations and companies and businesses where you have maybe thousand people. They all get along with each other. Yeah, they step on each other's toes, but... I mean, for the most part, and then in churches that people, I mean, they go to they go to sleep, cringing their teeth about how much they hate the guy over there. I think part of it is I think part of it is just the spiritual warfare nature. I mean, the last thing Satan wants is a bunch of Christians getting along. All right, and I think he works overtime to sow discord, um, and I think a lot of it is spiritual immaturity and ego. I really think a lot of it. You know, I, I look at. One day, I'm going to sit down one day and write down all the reasons people leave churches and how stupid they are when you really look at it from the big picture. Um, but people leave churches and get mad over the, over the stupidest things in the world. I mean, really dumb things. And um, I think a lot of it is ego. I've seen a lot of it. I think a lot of it is ego. Now, I hear people, I've, I've had a lot of guys tell me, well, I left the church because... Um, an open door here, one of them um, said, I left the church because uh, they have allowed Darlene Hepler to pray during the Sunday morning. They left church over that. Who's Darlene? Yeah. Uh, the, she is the um, um, women's ministry. She's head of all the women's ministries. All right. She's not a pastor. She's not called Pastor Darlene. He just had her pray. All right. Now, I mean, admittedly, between us, that's something I probably wouldn't have done. I'm more conservative, but but he did, you know, and, and, and they would actually get up out of the service and walk out the door. When she got up to the platform, they would get up out of, the, if they were in the service, they'd get up out and walk out the door. Over that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're standing up for the purity of the faith, you know, the ones delivered to the saints' faith, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, really, really upset about that. And uh, eventually they'll the church over that. Well, we, we don't like it because she prays. And, uh, and then I get another person that, oh, he could care less if she prays. But he was upset because uh, we're not as Calvinistic as we should be in our doctrine. So he left. And then I got another guy over here. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't think pastor preaches exegetical enough sermons. He doesn't throw in enough Greek words and Hebrew words. So he left because he's too wussy in his... Yeah, and all the, it's all a bunch of stupidity. 
I mean, it's not, a, there's no consistent, this is what's wrong. Everybody has their own little thing that they don't like. And ultimately, what it comes down to is, uh, I want to be in a place where I'm a big fish. And I can't be a big fish at open door, so I'll go to some little dinko church where I can be a big fish. That's pride. That's what it is. Literally, with their own problems that the person is dealing with. And the last place Satan wants you to be, or if Satan wants you to be when you're having personal spiritual conflict, is in church. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you see people latching on the silliest things. But I, I think when you really look beyond, almost always, you'll find there's something else there has to be. I mean, the spirit has yeah. moved out of the way. For people to latch onto these notions, something else underneath is. And, and that's what it is, because you know people say, I left because of Darlene. No, you didn't. Yeah. That's the excuse you're using. Because right. that sounds holy. It makes you sound like you know you did the right yeah, thing. And I'm sorry, they probably had some problem at the office as well, or, or problem somewhere else. Or mm -hmm. people are people, and, and we're all guilty of it. And I'm guilty of it because I'll be the one to tell you, you know, we all make you know, comments and we think we know best or know what's right. And then some people are just a little bit farther out than others, I think. I think it's pretty much human nature. Yeah. It? But in the church, it's to be different. In the church, we're to forbear one another. And that means to put up with. Yeah, sure. And a lot of times people don't. They don't do very well at putting up with other people or, or with things that don't go their way. You know. And, and I find that the people that whine the most are the people that do the least. You know. Um, yeah, I remember somebody asked me to the point blank, when you leave an open door? And I said, why should I leave open door? So, well, you don't agree with everything that, that goes on. I said, yeah. I said, am I going to feel any better when I come to your church? No, probably not. I've got a, you know, I've got a ministry there. Uh, I, I teach Sunday school, Moody, and, and I don't have any reason. Well, don't you think God can use you somewhere else? Well, yeah, he can, but he's not led me anywhere else. He's led me here. You know, but, but to them, it's inconceivable. That I, I'm a charismatic feminist to some of them. Now, I'm telling you, the last thing I am is a feminist, and I'm not a charismatic. But because I don't froth at the mouth like they do over these things, somehow I, I, I think it's okay kind of stuff. And it's just that people, people just latch on to the silliest things. People are people. I mean, that's what you people, like say. People are people. And it's the same at the Elks Club. You know, it's the same wherever you go. But it's, it's to be there. But the thing about the Thessalonian church, evidently, is they didn't have that problem because they had an abounding love to one another. Now, what caused that? What do you think caused that? The persecution. Absolutely. Look at, the, look at the seven churches in, um, in Revelation. you got two churches with nothing against them. You have the church at Smyrna. What was their problem? Persecution. I mean, they, they were the suffering church. The church at Philadelphia, what were they doing? God has given them an open door. And they were evangelistic. Um, you show me a church that's, that's very evangelistic. They don't have time to fight each other because they're busy winning the lost. You have a church that's suffering. They're not fighting each other because they're too busy just trying to survive. So you mean to tell me that there's a very few churches in America that actually have a prayer being those things because unless they evangelize, they're never going to be persecuted. That's about it. 
It's interesting, John MacArthur was interviewing Georgie Benz. You know who Georgie Benz is. He was a pastor in Russia for many years. Oh, Russia. Um, intense persecution in Russia. Worse than Romania, where you guys are from. Um, and John was asking him, he, they were just having lunch or something one day, having a conversation. John asked him, he says, boy, he said, you know, it must be really tough being a Christian in Russia, you know, under persecution and all that. And he said, no, it's really not that bad. He said, I don't know how you're a Christian here. He says, because here there isn't any cost. He says, you've got people coming to your church that just come because that's the thing to do Sunday morning. Nobody goes to church in Russia unless they're a real Christian. We don't have to worry about the tares in our church because only wheat shows up. You've got a whole church full of tares and wheat. He said, I don't even know how, I don't know how you can stand being a Christian over here. And it's because that persecution purifies the church and you have an abounding love. That's one difference. These guys grew up through persecution. But I think there's a stage where they have persecution large or any mature church, smaller large, where it's that winnowing that has to occur first. Mm -hmm. Probably the point you're making. It's not immediately that this happens. When you have abiding faith and growing love, you'll probably have some severe persecution and then you'll see people fighting and infighting and attempts to the hills until you're back to the core. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes God, yeah, sometimes God brings the heat along just to get rid of some of the chaff out of the church. You know, and uh, not to say that everybody leaves the church is bad, but it's just that it's it's a, it's an issue of priorities, and it's tough being this kind of church in America because it's it's too convenient to be a Christian. What's the cost? Absolutely nothing. You get so much to gain. I mean, you know. I'm thinking sometimes, how come people don't come to our church? My goodness, they get free food, they get free entertainment, they get free everything. Maybe they have to pay a buck. Yeah. If they go to a movie theater, it costs more than that, right? It costs, you know, four or five bucks. Think about it. It's, you know, we're giving everything at a discount, and they still don't come. That's right. Then it says here, not only did they have an abounding love, but it said they had patience and faith in all your persecutions. What, what's that pointing to? I, I'm just putting an abiding hope. <clears throat> Gee, look at that. Faith, hope, and love. Where would that come from? That's First Thessalonians. Okay. That's First in Corinthians. Faith, hope, and love. Where was the hope they were... For. It says they, they, they had patient and faith in all their persecutions and troubles what they endure. What makes it possible for you to face the tribulations and persecutions of your society? What makes that possible? Someday God will take care of you. I mean, that, that's the thing about the, you know, if, you know, the question is, if all you're going to be is persecuted as a Christian, why would anybody in their right mind want to be a Christian? What do you get? Beat up. Well, what does God give you? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. There's a hope that someday it will be worth it all. Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. You know, the thing that makes it impossible for us to go through the trials that we go through is because there's a better day coming. It makes it possible. And unless you latch on to that better day coming, you bail. See, that's why a lot of people, when the heat goes up, they bail out because they have no hope. They have no hope of a better time. 
Um, what's the the passage over in Peter or Second Peter? Uh, I'm trying to think. It says for this reason, giving all diligence, first Second Peter one five. Add your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And it's not you add these on, it's just that you, you, you grow in all of these areas. Because if you do that, you don't forget that you're born again. You know, a lot of times people, people who suffer being, who, who suffer under the, the, the fear of losing their salvation are usually people that have some sin in their life that, that they, they're struggling with. And they think, well, how can I be a Christian if I got this sin? And the whole question is, does the sinner struggle with sin? No. no. For the most part, they don't. Oh, I'll struggle with the, the you know, the, 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 maybe their conscience or maybe the penalty of sin or the consequences, but sin for sin, nah, they don't care about that. They don't feel any way to that. This, the church here, because of their persecution, it had a tendency to purify them, to give them an abiding hope, a faith that, in, that was growing, and a love. The faith was growing because they had to trust God just to exist. See? And, and, and our problem today, you know, we just say, well, persecution is a bad thing. I don't want to be persecuted. It's bad. And we want to just get rid of it at all costs. Yeah, probably the best thing to do is to have persecution because it makes you really value that which is important. I have um, a little thing here on how, how to tell if you're a loving Christian. How do you tell if, you have, if you're exhibiting love in the church? How, do you, how can you tell that? Well, the first thing, you just go through the Bible. Are you harboring bitterness or an unforgiving spirit? Yeah, you know, I remember when he did that to me 25 years ago, and I'll never forget it. I remember visiting a guy that used to go to this church, and the first thing he mentioned to me was something that happened to him, I think, 15 years ago, over 15 years ago, and was still harboring a grudge. I said, well, good night, you know, can't you get on with life? Jeez. But it's an unforgiving spirit. You know, I don't want to forgive you. Um, the Bible says, tells us we are to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Do you envy other believers? Are you always wanting what they have? Well, love envies not. Um, are you proud of yourselves? You look down on other people because you're better off than they are. Well, love does not puffed up. It means to fill us up with smoke like a balloon. Do you always see the worst in other believers and attribute to them the worst of motives? This is the, I see this. This is probably the number one sin of the evangelical church in America. What, yeah, I've had so many people come and say, you know why David Walls did that? It's because of blah, blah, blah. And they miss it by a mile. Because they attribute the worst possible motive to anything. No one ever just thinks, well, maybe he's just doing it for the right reason. I mean, that, that's, you don't think of that, but it's always some ulterior, hidden, secret motive. And it's not just him, it's anybody. You know it's like, Willie. I mean, you do something at church, somebody, well, you know, the reason he's doing that is because, and they, they attribute some motive to you that you that you wouldn't even thought of. All right? And we do it all of the time. It happens all the time. Love thinks no evil. You know, you're not always thinking the worst or trying to find the worst. 
It's patient. Are you patient with other believers? That means you put up with them. You know, some Christians I just put up with. I really don't like them, but I put up with them. You know, that, that's what forbear one another and forgive one another means. You know, you put up with them. Are you kind? Do you speak evil of them all the time? You know, I mean, this is the second greatest sin in the church. Yeah, everybody's, you know, you're always talking about sanctified slander. I want you to pray for so-and-so you hear about their affair. You know, you lay that on, you know. I just want you to pray for it and pray more intelligently, you know. And you, and you unload the dirty laundry, you know. Um, it happens all, you know, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know and you've not witnessed. Does your heart ache when other believers fall into sin? Ooh, that's a good one. We had a situation a little over a year ago. One of our pastors had a moral problem, and you ought to have seen the hatred that was vented his way by some people who thankfully are not here anymore. Do you guys still have any more members? Because you keep talking about them too much dropping out. They come in as fast as they leave. Really? Yeah. I went to a, to a Maxwell seminar, John Maxwell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was talking about it, he was going on and going on. And said, you know, I, I, I'm talking so much about all these members that are leaving our church. And somebody came up to me once and said, my goodness, how, how did you ever keep anybody? And he said, you know what? We used to keep two or three churches at the bottom of our hill in business just to, to all the people that ran away from our church yeah. that didn't like it. He said he had probably three or four times more people leave his church than stayed in his church. Mm -hmm. And he has a church, or he had a church for about. Yeah, you, you have a lot of people. The thing is that people just leave Yeah, it's my personal opinion that people leave churches too quickly for too many of the wrong reasons. There, there comes a time when it's right to leave a church, but but I'll tell you what, I haven't seen a lot of them personally. It's been a lot of personal petty issues. And like, like for example, I know one man that left the church here because we would have the gall to forgive that pastor that fell into sin and actually want to try and help him out. And they wanted a... Huh? That's pretty sad. And they wanted a public beheading on the platform next Sunday. And you know, you're sitting there saying, where, where is the abounding love? I mean, we're not excusing... They say, ah, oh, you're soft on sin. No, we're not. Who's soft on sin? The guy lost his job. Crime and nitly. He lost his job. And he, you know, he stood up in front of the entire church on a Sunday morning packed house and, and apologize and ask for their forgiveness. I mean, that takes a lot of guts. Yeah. And that wasn't good enough. And you, you want to say, where is the love? It's not that you're soft on sin. Christ was very hard on sin. But when the woman that was a prostitute came in and, you know, cried and washed his feet with her tears and that, what did he do? Kick her in the face, tell her buzz off? Forgave her. And that got the Pharisee fried. Yeah. You know, and then he gives a story about, um, let me tell you about the two guys that owed money. One owed, you know, five dollars, the other five thousand. Gave them both which one loves him more. Well, think about it. The Pharisee got that answer right. The problem is we got a lot of Pharisees in our churches today. And, and it's a lack of forgiveness. And and part of loving another person, I'm sorry, is forgiveness. Forgiveness keeps us. Love keeps a short list. That's one of the, I, I think there's one paraphrase that has that in 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps a short list. It, you don't let all of these offenses back up to the exploding point. You love people. You forgive them. Um, 
which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now what verse 5 is essentially saying is that you, you, here the church is going through these intense persecutions. So when uh, Robert Schuller shows up in their town and preaches to them, what's he going to tell them about their persecutions? You know Bob Schuller is. Yeah, you know, you, should, you got faith. Where's your faith? If you had faith, you wouldn't have these problems. What's, going, what's wrong with you people? You know, if you, or, or some of these other yo-yos on television. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you shouldn't have these trials. You're the children of God. You shouldn't be suffering this. Yeah, well, yeah, sure, is this positive self-esteem or something like that. And, and, and you got the other people that come along say, if you're suffering for the Lord, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be the you should be the ones running in this town. What are you suffering for Jesus for? And what's it saying here? Where ultimately, why are these people suffering? Ultimately, who 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 is behind ultimately their suffering? God. God. God allows it, right? right? Now, if God's not sitting there saying, I want them to suffer, ha, 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 you know, trying to just do it for the sake of doing it, no. He allows suffering. Why? Why does God allow suffering? Of the kingdom of God. What does suffering produce? Patience. Patience and character. And you don't get it any other way. That's just the way it is. You don't get it any other way. And what we see is we see suffering as this bad thing. And what Paul is saying here is that the suffering you're enduring is manifest evidence. Everybody can see evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you suffer. God allows it to mature you. The judgment's not against them. No, it's not. The judgment's right because the people who are persecuting them are showing that they will rightfully be judged. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the idea there. It's, it's, a, it's a dual thing. Number one, the, the, the people, when the people suffer, what does it show the world? What's the world find out about the Thessalonian believers because they're suffering? Well, that they're true, right? Because tr suffering will not kill true faith. Alright? Why do you believe in a God you've never seen in a heaven you've never experienced, in a person you've never talked to like Jesus Christ, in a place you've never been to, heaven. Why, why do you believe all that stuff? Because you woke up one day and thought it was a good thing? Because you read it in a book? Because God gave you something. He gave you the ability to believe. He gave you the faith. So see, it's not really your faith, it's God's faith that He grants you. And that is an unassailable, unkillable, eternal faith. But the person who just, on the spur of the moment, believes, but never really believes, what kind of faith do they have when the persecution comes along? Dry up and shrivel and go away. So what Paul is saying is that the sufferings that you're going through are doing, have several things. Number one, it's maturing you. I mean, that's, that's verses 3 and 4. Number two is a manifest token of your true salvation. How do you know you're a Christian? Because you're enduring the trials that you're going through. 
And then in verse 6, don't worry about it because God will repay those who are persecuting you. They're not going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. It's a righteous thing for God to pay with tribulation those who trouble you. God will take care of the books. You know, the books get evened out. You know, we, we, we think it, it, it won't be evened out. No, it will be evened out. God will take care of that. And the, the thing here, the thing that I like about this, is usually when people are persecuted, what happens? If, if the church suffered persecution today, what would we be doing? What's the initial reaction of many people? Start whining, complaining, griping, or else let's go pick it, yeah. or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. That's a big thing. Let's go pick it, write our Congress. What did it produce in their church? An abounding love. There weren't any grumblings and whiners and complainers. It's interesting, I'm going through Exodus, and every time you turn around, what's Israel doing? God brought us out here to kill us, we know it. We just know it. We, he, wasn't good enough in Egypt. We had to bring us out here in the desert to die. Again, and, I mean, it, it, you know, it's like again and again and again and again. Every time we turn around. God does a miracle. Water from the rock. The next day, wine, gripe, complain. Well, we're dead now. That's it. All right. And the, the, the persecutions they were suffering wasn't doing that in this church. Rather, it was making them stronger. And it was proving who they were counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Um, the kingdom of God, it's, there's a price to be paid. It's all you are. There's a cost. Christianity is not costless. You now we get this idea, well, come to Jesus. All you do is believe. It's totally free. Is it? It's all you are. When you come to Christ, you trade what you were banking on. You know, like Paul said, well, Philippians 3. Here's the list. Look in the wall. Here's, here's the degrees. Here's the, you know, all this stuff. He said, when I became a believer, I took that off the wall and threw it in the garbage can. Because it, it meant nothing anymore. There's, there's a transaction in salvation. I give up myself, all that I am, for all that he is didn't produce a grumbling, complaining church. Because it says here in 6, it's a righteous thing. It's right for God to repay with tribulation those who persecute us. When they persecute us, who are they ultimately persecuting? God, Christ. Paul, why are you kicking me? Paul wasn't kicking Christ. He was kicking Christ's church. And Christ said, why are you persecuting me because he's identifying. It says here, God will repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those that know not God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because their testimony among you was believed. Now, this, this here is a, 
Of all the passages in the New Testament, this is the one that people like to latch on to for the post-tribulational view and all of that. I mean, they, they latch on to this like, proves it, right here it is, see? Or Marv Rosenthal and company with the pre-wrath view, here it is, see? See? Christ comes, he, he, and he, in flaming fire, he rescues us, and then he brings judgment on the lost. Well, which, remember we talked about the two phases of Christ's coming, wherever you're at. You've got, you've got the rapture phase, you've got the revelation phase. What phase is this talking about here? <coughs> this is the revelation phase. Oh, based on what Pardon? Based on what you say that this is the revelation. Well, look at Matthew. What happens? Matthew 24. Yeah. Well, remember, we got a real timeline here. We got the rapture. And pre-post, or I mean not post, but pre-wrath, pre-trib, whatever. But there's a time period in here between that and the revelation. Okay? Now, what happens at the revelation? What do we know happens there when Christ comes back again? What happens? And what happens to the sheep goats? Matthew 24, 25. Separation. Separation. Where do the goats go? Fire. Everlasting fire prepared, pre prepared for the devil and his angels. So what piece of it is it talking about here? It's correlating back to that part. It's going back to Matthew. All right. The point I'm trying to make is this. I'm doing a fancy thing to make this point. Paul is not trying to give us a blow-by-blow -blow chronology timeline of the second coming. He's speaking in generalities. All right, And generally, when Christ comes back in flaming fire with his angels, that's the revelation. That's what he's talking about. What's going to happen to those who persecute us? Well, first of all, they've been left behind, but who, what happens to the persecutors? They're judged. I don't think he's trying to give us a detailed description of the timing and the events surrounding the second coming. This is talking about revelation and flaming fire, taking vengeance with the angels. This is all judgment here. And what happens to those who, who are there when he comes? Well, it doesn't say, well, there's a period of time in between his coming and their judging. When he comes, then they are judged right there. They are punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and be admired among all those who believe, when, when is the world visibly going to see him return? Well, this, is rap this is revelation. This isn't rapture here. Okay, but in verse 7 it says, And we leave to, to you who are troubled. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Is there a discussion of the payback at the rapture? Though? No. Okay, that's the difference here. Just both of them. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing is, and people get confused on that, and they say, well, go back to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, the recovery of sight to the blind, um, I forget the other one, uh, the releasing of the captives, etc., and the day of vengeance of our God. And, and what happened when Christ read that passage? Where did he stop? Remember? Just halfway through. Because the day of vengeance of our God is future. Now, if you were the average Jew reading 
Isaiah 61, you would think, well, it would happen at the same time. But there's a gap of time in between there. I think that's what you see here. Because if not, I, I'll tell you the one thing that this would not lead me to believe if this is all I had, as far as the second coming, I would not be a pre-tribulationist or a pre-wrath, I would be a post-tribulationist. That's what I would wind up if I just had this. That's yeah, I just I'd be there. But I have to correlate this with other passages. And to me, what I think quite what I think Paul's trying to do here is give them just a general statement. Look, those who are our persecutors, persecutors of believers, when God comes back again, there's going to be judgment, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those. And, and there's going to be believers also during the tribulation too, those who come to Christ, they're going to be given rest when he comes. Okay, but what is, why does he mention that only then will we receive our relief? Where? In verse 7. Guys, you're going back constantly. Give trouble to rest with us when the Lord rest. is revealed from heaven. Rest. Rest from persecutions. Relief is a good thing. Relief from persecutions. When God comes back at the end of the tribulation and destroys the ungodly, the, un the godly get relief. It's general. I, I, the thing I'm trying to make is I don't think that Paul is trying to give us an exact chronology of the end time any more than Daniel did. He says, um, Daniel has a, there's another one in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where Daniel says that and some sort of the, uh, the day is coming when many sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, if you just read that, what, what would you assume, just how many resurrections would you have? Two. Well, one, right? Some go to life, some go to death. But when you get to Revelation, what do you have? <coughs> really, four. You have Christ in the first fruits, those are alive when Christ comes again the last gleanings at the end of the tribulation, and then a thousand years later, the dead, the, the, the um, unsaved are raised again. And there's two resurrections, a first resurrection, three phases, a second resurrection split by a thousand years. But reading Daniel, you wouldn't have come to that conclusion. Because Daniel wasn't trying to emphasize the chronology, he was just saying in a general statement what's going to happen. And I think, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable Understanding that's what's going, what's happening here. If not, I have to be a post-tribulationist, which I don't think is a very tenable position at all. Good, it shows timelines. It's a false statement. Um, relief. Oh, those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, so if you really took a definite time to hold on, he promised relief for his own trouble. So no, that really never gets us until the end. Yeah. It's comes, there'll be retribution, and there'll be comfort. But really, it isn't a million, it wasn't a million thing like that in my lifetime. Yeah. We think we think in such short cycles because we live less than a hundred years. Yeah. That in the eternal span, this is still like a denial. It's nothing. Time-wise. Now, now, the one thing he does talk about here is everlasting destruction. And uh, what you have today, unfortunately, in, in the church is um, a notion that says hell is not eternal. It's called annihilationism. 
and some big time names. You ever hear John R. Stott? Do you believe that? Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah. He he is he is he is very he is very sympathetic and if not sympathetic even believes in annihilationism. Clark Pinnock's gone off the deep end. He's he's really into this thing. Um, but basically, what what happens is people see this everlasting destruction notion here, and they, and there's there's six there's six basic views of what happens to the lost at death. One, some people say there's immediate annihilation. In other words, if you're lost and you die, that's the end of it. Um, some call it conditional immortality, where your your immortality is conditional on belief in Christ. If you don't believe in Christ, you're die. You're just like a dog. You're dead. That's the end of it. Only those who believe in Christ get to live forever, kind of thing. That's uh, immediate annihilation. Some believe in immediate salvation. Everybody gets saved. You know, everybody. That's the Kubler Ross. You know, the 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 Moody on death and dying. You know, you light at the end of the tunnels, the loving God, and you know, I was worried about my sins, and he just sort of snickered at them. You know, like it's no big deal. Well, I mean, who's that? Probably Satan. Some say, no, you have a postponed salvation. In other words, you die, you, you lose consciousness, soul sleep, you're raised again at some point, in which case then you have eternal life. Some uh, say, no, it's, it's postponed annihilationism, and there's a couple of views on that. Number one, you die, you're raised again, judged, and then you're annihilated. All right, or they say you die, you suffer for a while until you know, for depending on how bad you were, and then someday you know that's enough's enough, and poof, you're gone. That's the end of it. But it's not an eternal thing. Some believe in a second chance. You know, you die and you're given a second chance. A lot. This is really popular with a, a lot. A lot of religions have this. The Mormons believe this, for example. You always know, got a second chance. And then there's the what I call a classic view, or just the historical view, which says. If you're lost, you suffer forever. If you're redeemed, you enjoy heaven forever. And and how how do you answer this? I mean, this is this is really cutting through the church. And it's interesting because I listened to a debate between Erwin Lutzer and Clark Pinnock on this thing on Moody Open Line. And uh, Clark kept saying, "Well, you know, I just don't think God would, and I don't think God's like this, and I don't." And I'm sitting there saying, "Verses, verses. Ver he had none." Clark Pinnock. Never mind. What you In think? fact, you got to do a web search. You find him. He's out there. He's got a bunch yeah. of P I N N O C K. And uh, well, you know, I don't think my God would. And the problem with that is, who are we to say what God's like? You want to know what God's like? Where do you go? Bible. You go to the Bible. You go to what He says He's like, not what you think He's like. Right? That's idolatry, by the way. But how do you respond to this? Well, in Revelation fourteen eleven, it's a very interesting verse. It says, uh, those who take the mark of the beast, it says, smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels. All right, now, can you torment a rock? Can you torment an annihilated being? No, you can't. How can you have torment? Consciousness. And since the torment is forever and ever, what is the consciousness? Forever and ever. It's not a temporary thing. Um, so you, and it's interesting because when I was listening to this debate, Clark Pinnock said, "Yeah, that is the toughest verse we have to deal with." You know, well, duh, just read the thing. I mean, crying manly, you know, just read it. It tells it pretty clearly there. And uh, 
the other argument is that the same term is used to refer to eternal life and eternal death. Now, the way they get around this is they do a backflip and handspring and say, you got to understand when I'm talking about eternal life, it's talking about duration, but eternal death is talking about the finality of death. It's, it's, that's it. It's an eternal decision, it's almost like. So they would read this verse, say, everlasting destruction. Oh, that means it's just final, not to be reversed. You know, that's the last decision on it. And it's everlasting in the sense that the consequences of their death is everlasting. That's, that's voodoo. That, that's tweedledee, tweedledum hermeneutics. Where you twist the word and make it mean what you want it to mean. Well, in believers it means eternal, but in unbeliever it means final. Well, you can't do that because the same word's used in the same verse to refer to both groups. So you got a trouble there. Um, in the eternal state, in Revelation 21, 22, which is the eternal state, it says, there's two verses, and uh, Revelation 21, 8 and 22, 15, and it says, outside the city are dogs and abominers and murderers and all liars. Alright, so outside the city. So in the eternal state, if there's this wickedness outside the city, what does that seem to imply? There is something there, hell, lake of fire, outside the city. All right, and it, it mentions it twice in the eternal state. So this place of torment is in the eternal state because it's outside the city. Um, there's no sense there that they outside the city were, outside the city are. And then you find in Revelation 20.10 the Antichrist and false prophet are there after a thousand years. They're still there. It says Satan is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. It's not where they were, it's where they are. They're still there. And they say, well, you got to understand, they're just the bad guys. It's going to take them a few thousand years to be annihilated. Well, you're just reading something in that you want it to say. That's not what it's saying. Then if the torment of the occupants of the lake of fire is not eternal, then why is the lake of fire spoken of in terms like eternal and everlasting? Everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, if ultimately everybody in there is burned up, you can turn the, you can turn the fire off, right? Because it's empty. So you don't need it if it's eternal. If it's not eternal. And then what do you mean when it says the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched? I mean, the problem is when you get into this annihilation thing, what you got to do is you got to do backflips and handsprings around the text of the clear text of Scripture, and you got to fall into this. I think my God is like hermeneutic. I think my God. You know, how can God um, loves the world have an eternal chamber of horrors when he and then he looks over in glee at these people suffering in the flames of hell? kind of thing. My response to that is, well, you don't understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. That's your problem. Justice. You don't understand justice. Yeah. See, and, and, that, and I think it ultimately goes back to that. Why did God create anything? To glorify himself. To exhibit his character, his attributes. Well, in eternal state, as a believer, what character attributes of his do I exhibit? Well, love, mercy, Grace, forgiveness, compassion. What, what, what a character attribute does the lost display? Justice, wrath, hatred of sin. And both need to be there for us to understand God.
which answers the question, why is there evil in the universe? To glorify God. How can, how can I glorify God? Well, if there were no evil, what would we understand about God's attributes of love, grace, mercy? No. We have no idea what they were, because there's nothing to contrast it with. Did God create evil? No, but he allowed it. God did not create it. He's not the originator. He allowed it. He allowed evil into the universe. But these here, this is, this is, this is everlasting. Therefore, verse 11, we all, always also pray for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of the God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The bottom line in those two verses is how is it that they endure? How is it that I endure to the end? Who does it? Me or God? God. It's the grace of God. It's the power of God. Now that doesn't let me off the hook. I have to still make a choice and a decision. But what gives me the ability to even make a choice and decision? It's the grace of God. Yeah. Prior? It's through God. Yeah. It's God's power that does it. You know that that goes. You know we keep thinking my faith. I'll tell you what about my faith. If I had to believe. I'd miss heaven because <clears throat> my faith is not good enough. It wavers. It, but God's faith now—that's different. And that's the faith I'm granted in salvation. I am given the faith to believe. And it's an un—it's an unsale. That's the book of Job. The bottom line of the book of Job is God is proving to Satan that the faith I give is not a bogus faith. It doesn't matter what I do to Job; he's going to still believe me because it's a true, unassailable, eternal faith. It's not based in a man's emotion. Okay, well, we'll pick up with chapter 2 next week. That's going to be a tough one there. Next week, the last week? No, another week after that. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this time of study, and thank you for your grace to us. And I pray that we would be godly men who exhibit your character to those around us. We just thank you for the love that you've given us and the faith to believe and your work in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.